Hi, Rachel. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am feeling like I'm trying to find something that I maybe some people's idea of a lunatic, but some people's idea of a, a true seeker. I'm seeking the yum yum in this episode of Babylon Five. We are Ryan and Rachel. Because how are you doing? Are you doing all right? You gave me a disparaging look just then when I said try to find the yum yum in this episode, as in you found it very easily. So Deuce. Deuce is the one that would say it. Yeah, we'll get to Deuce. <laughs> Big old Deuce. So we're Ryan and Rachel, and we are the Yum Yum Podcast because of that iconic line of dialogue from Star Trek Discovery. And although we are rewatching and talking about Babylon 5 in full spoiler details, we did start out as a Star Trek Discovery rewatch podcast, and one day we shall return to that. But we have always kept that yum-yum line that was uttered by a side character out of nowhere. We've kept it in our hearts. We had to name ourselves after it so that everyone could remember that iconic line of dialogue so that we could play the clips of her saying it and use it as our rating system because let's never forget that that was a piece of dialogue put into a modern prestige science fiction show. But we aren't talking about modern prestige science fiction, we're talking about old prestige science fiction, or not even prestige. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty great. You're struggling there. It's pretty great TV. It is great, but prestige television... It was ahead of its time. It was. We are talking Babylon 5, and we are going to be discussing which episode, Rachel, which one are we revisiting and talking about? Well, we did the classic... Classic. Classic of TKO last week. Yeah, so we're out of the depths of season one, right? We're, we're, we're uh, uh, up, up on the... Up on the good ones now? Ryan, you know this show, Backwards and Forwards, and you've watched the first season more than any other, mm-hmm. as we've heard over and over and over again. Or any again. other person, yeah. <laughs> so you know that we're up to... Grail! Everyone, everyone, it's Grail. I am seeking the sacred vessel of regeneration, known also as the Cup of the Goddess, or by its more common name, the Holy Grail. The DVD brochure offers up this particular description for this episode. Mm -hmm. The quest of the cosmic wayfarer David Warner Mm. for the legendary Holy Grail brings him to the station and into a man-versus-monster mind-to-mind showdown with an unholy foe. The tentacled, brain-erasing Nakeen Fida. Nakaleen Fida. Nakaleen Fida. Grail is the episode, so let's talk about our history with Grail. As you stated, I have seen this season many a times, and so I am very familiar with this episode. I know this episode quite well. I have never hated this episode. I always just thought it was mediocre, and I thought it had an interesting hook that it never followed through on, which is the Ambassador Kosh angle of this story. 
which they kind of throw away immediately after their cold open. It's a really good cold open, but also it fails in ways. But this is the episode in which David Warner comes onto the station and he's looking for the Holy Grail yep. and nobody he's cares. He's our weirdo of the week. Well, no, Jinxo's our weirdo of the week. But he, David Warner's the weirdo that comes to the station. Uh, yes, well, Jinxo's the one who built the station. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I I just have very little feelings on, on Grail. It has some minor moments of joy, and then the rest of it is kind of, it's here. And that's been my dynamic with it, and it still is. What about you? What's your relationship with Grail? I always forget that this episode's here. Mm. I'm like, oh yeah, that is in the first half of the first season. I always think that it's later for some reason, and I always, always think that it's a B-plot of an episode. No, no, no. But it's the only plot of the episode. <laughs> well, no, there's a B plot which is Deuce. Deuce is the B plot. But he, he intersects with the A plot, yeah, but it's like, like it's it not doesn't... like he's trying to stop David Warner from getting the Holy Grail. No, but like David Warner only really matters and comes into it because he's so involved with Deuce. Well, Jinxo. with Jinxo and Deuce by proxy. <sighs> okay, so you don't really care about this episode, huh? Is this the first episode of B5 that has garnered apathy from us? Yeah, but there's still parts that I do like. So I don't... I'm apathetic towards the grail aspect because it, it doesn't really go anywhere in particular. And it's like that's kind of the point. And yeah. It's, it's interesting because... This episode is often brought up in the bad ones, but it's not one of the immediate ones brought up, and that kind of speaks to its resounding qualities of being bland as hell, because you forget it exists, so do so many people. It's not as if it's uh, out of place like TKO's A-plot was. It's not a bad episode, it's a meh. Yeah, and it's not as offensive as some other bad entries or as mind-boggling as some. It's You're like, okay, I could see this happening on Babylon 5 as an episode, and that's as exciting as it gets. Like, like oh, yeah, yeah, I could see that happening in the I show. I think also a reason why it's forgettable to me is that it has good pacing. So mm. it just kind of flies by and it's like, oh, it's done now. It's done now. Whereas, like, other bad episodes I remember more because they drag or they have these big things that are like, what what the fuck is this doing here? Or, oh, you, you were, oh, honey, you were trying, I guess, but, oh, my God, this is dog shit. But this is just like, yeah, it's it's here. I'm surprised to see you here. After all, I'm not surprised to see you here. We are talking about it in a very apathetic nature, but I did enjoy myself throughout most of it. It wasn't as if I was rolling my eyes and getting angry or frustrated. 
I had some It just really, goes by. There's some really fun moments, and the biggest strength of this episode is our main crew of characters, when they are in the story and we have scenes with them, they feel like the characters we know. They have good back and forth, they have good little moments, little jokes, little asides, great stuff from Delenn in this mm. episode. I feel like we haven't talked about Delenn all that much in the show, because she isn't really in season one as much as you'd like to think she is. She's kind mm. of absent from a lot, and when she has been here, she's been very... Shady. I'm keeping secrets of plots for the future. And she does that here too. And it's, you know, it is what it is. But I felt like this is one of the first few episodes in the show in which I actually got a feeling of what Delenn is about as a character outside of the secrets. What Delenn values as a person and a member of the religious cast. Yeah, this is... Does a better job to me than T uh, than um sorry not TK than Parliament of Dreams does in terms of actually solidifying what their kind of spirituality is. Like we saw a ceremony in uh, Parliament of Dreams, and it's like okay that's cool we got to see them practicing, but here seeing her engage with other spiritual aspects of societies and how she bestows her wisdom and her points of view and how actively engaged and respectful she is of uh, David Warner's quest. I love when she ambushes Sinclair when he's just trying to eat his, like, breakfast. breakfast. Yeah, yeah. And she's just like, what are you doing here? Yeah, this is also one of the first episodes where you get a real sense of the Lanier Delenn dynamic and how mm, they and play off fun. of each other as yeah ambassador and attaché. And Mira Fulan's really great in this episode. She really manages to balance all these different tonal aspects of the character because she is funny in this episode. Yeah. She has her funny little moments, but she's... And it's really fun to see her as mm. well and. That, I feel, comes from the performance. Because, it, like, we've only had, like, shady Delenn yeah. and ominous Delenn up until this point. But her, as a performer, is, like, playing to all of these different kind of tones and undertones. Which, Nuances. Which make it really fun to watch. Yeah, this one felt like she had more to work with in the script. Like, in Soul Hunter, she's very pissed off and she's holding secrets. And we get to hear exposition about the mythology in terms of the soul. But in this episode, I felt it rather than I read exposition. You know, like, she talked about it and I felt like this was an honest truth of that character's yeah. existence and worldview rather than I'm just getting delivered world-building information. Yeah, like, it, it rang true rather than, rather than, like, an exposition gong. And that also factors into... The in that we're so far through the season now that we've gotten familiar with all of these characters and so when we do hear more of this stuff it just feels like a given rather than being forced upon us like yeah if this was the third episode of the first season then maybe we would feel it's a bit too exposition dumpy but 
since it is so late in the game and Mira Falan delivers it with just such ease, as does Bill Moomy with uh, Lanier in every scene. <laughs> I really like there was a cute little moment with uh, with Sinclair, right? And it's ominous too, where at the end of the episode, Sinclair is lamenting the fact that you, you might search for that, something and never, and never find, find it. And, and she reflects it back on him basically saying, well, what are you searching for? Are you that? Like, are you talking about Jinxo here or somebody else? Are you, no, you're talking about David Warner or you're talking <laughs> about you because you underestimate yourself, laddie. I know stuff about you and you're on the track. You're on the good track here. And yes, on a rewatch value that is... Oh, foreshadowing, and we're learning stuff. And even when you watch it, you know that this is teasing, teasing, teasing. Yeah, because Dylan has done so much of that stuff already. But there was a playful energy there between the two performers that made it feel more than just being teased on future plots. Dynamic. Both performers are uh, comfortable in this episode enough to play with how to deliver the lines of dialogue, which for the most part, the lines of dialogue in this episode are very boilerplate and dry, but pretty much all of our performers, Garibaldi's really fun in this episode. He had this whole little diatribe about being called Mr. Garibaldi. It's like, yes, Mr. Garibaldi will help you get your credits. Mr. Garibaldi will do this. Like, it's acknowledging that people keep calling him Mr. Garibaldi all the time, and he's like, he doesn't like being called Mr. Garibaldi all the time. Mr. Garibaldi would be delighted. One of the things I'm really appreciating on this rewatch is how much of an atheist fuckboy Garibaldi is and how Jerry Doyle kind of imbues that in his <laughs> performance because he's rolling his eyes and shrugging and sighing and just looking absolutely pissed off with the plot of this episode being bestowed. He's not even having to say it out loud. You look at him in the background of shots as David Warner's walking around with his stupid ass cane and Jerry Doyle... Stuff. Please. Sorry, staff. And Jerry Doyle as Garibaldi is reacting like the atheist he is, where he's just like, ah, these religious people. Because ah. we've yeah. seen throughout this season, that's been a recurring trait of Garibaldi's. He's just like, he has no time for any of this bullshit. Yeah, and it's like, it pisses him off even more when it's like Jinxo has stolen the guy's credits when he's, like, going to exchange them at the machine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, Garibaldi had to show him to. And it's just like, what do you... What do you mean you don't want to press charges, essentially? What do you mean? Like, I have to... Like, this is not how things work, dude. You can't just say, I forgive him and we all move on. A tricky aspect of the Garibaldi side of this story that I actually quite like, and I say it's tricky because people would hate this, of course, because it's a hashtag problematic, hashtag Michael Alfredo Garibaldi is a cop, problematic, blue lives don't matter, that kind of shit. 
I actually really like and appreciate that Garibaldi and Sinclair butt heads over how to treat the down below, and that Garibaldi yeah. just wants to arrest them all and throw them off of this station because that rings true to his character. Yeah. I would I would be completely thrown off if he was like Dr. Franklin, like, oh, kumbaya, let's give them free clinics. That's not Garibaldi. No. That's not how he's been presented. Garibaldi is not lacking empathy, of course, but he's he is a he's his job at the same time and the way he does his job is very different to yeah. say how Zach Allen handles the he, job later in the show. He never sees criminals as redeemable. No, not really. That's why Thomas teaches him a lesson in this episode. He has a little his little arc, Garibaldi, of not always judging a book by its cover, unless it's Deuce, because you're right, it is Deuce. Deuce is involved. But uh, any other fun moments that leap to mind for you? Boom. Boom. <laughs> for such a shit... <laughs> boring episode it does contain one of the most iconic of Vonova moments in yes. the entire series which is like just drop the whole thing here no boom no boom no boom today boom tomorrow there's always a boom tomorrow what look somebody's gotta have some damn perspective around here boom sooner or later boom she is great. It's just that one scene, really. She kind of walks in and out of the episode here and there. Yeah. Claudia Christian knows how to deliver it, but what makes it work is same with uh, in By Any Means Necessary, right, with Londo doing all of his stuff. There's just something so wholly true about what is happening that rings to the character. This speech is a Vonova. Yeah. She's... She's she's not pessimistic. She's Russian, you know that type of deal. Where of course Ivanova would be the glass half empty person in the situation here. She's the one in the room that would point out, but we're all going to die at some point, and we should accept that as a fact. And everyone just goes, Ivanova, and of course Ivanova, being Ivanova, is like, what? I'm correct. Yeah, and it's just like <laughs> there was a boom. Like, there was something that went bad today. It just, it wasn't, the, the station blew up. Yeah, it was an old man died. <laughs> he got shot by Deuce, everyone. Deuce! Uh, such an American name. Deuce. Hey, hey, howdy there. It's me, Deuce. And it, Deuce yeah, from Blade Runner. <laughs> and, and Deadwood. Deuce. <laughs> Londo. Londo's great in this episode. Yeah. Via returns. Via, it's been a Via. very long yeah. time since we've seen Via. I think the last time we saw him must have been the uh must have been the Earth First episode, right? Have we seen him since then? I cannot remember if we've seen him since then. Because that's after the Lovers one, right? That's the Lovers episode. Yeah. Uh I don't think we've seen Via in almost like 10 episodes. Yeah. It's been a very long time. I was so happy to see him, weren't you? Yeah. I like how Londo is so pissed that he's being <laughs> proactive and productive. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, we are meant to extort them for money first. And also not do the job either way. <laughs> yeah. 
It was great. We cannot be helpful. Londo was very silly. Hearing the news about the feeder, his instant reply was, ah! Which is, again, when Londo said that, I nodded my head going, of course he would say that. Yeah. That's what he would say in reply to this being a thing. He would go, eh. The nan, eh. Nakaline feeders, eh. <laughs> Not giving me money, eh. Via, a pleasure to see him. You're right. I love his being proactive and... That is what's awesome about Veer is he is the character that lets us know that not all Centauri are Londo. Mm-hmm. He's the only attaché that serves that purpose in this point of the story where they are different to their ambassador because Natoth is very similar to Jakarv and as is Lania. But Veer is very different. He's he's naive. He's goofier. He's more of a sentimental heart. He's he actually wants to do work and actually wants to help others and he's not like a nationalistic imperialist he's just like a young guy who's wants to help this old man find the grail and you're right londo's reaction to it is so fun he has that line i can't remember exactly what it was it was something like fools to the left of me feeders to the right Uh, i need a real job yes (laughs) and then he just leaves the scene and it was awesome and all the character stuff is really fun here because it feels like it's also been a little while since we've got to see partying Londo at the casino and Garibaldi's there talking to him and Sinclair's there talking to him and like Garibaldi winding Londo up about the what they learn about the knuckling feeders. It's like yeah. it's silence. That's <laughs> that's the real killer. And yeah. obviously winding them up. And that's not there for anything. It's just there to be fun. There's a really nice kind of taster platter of character moments from our main crew that's in the sort of background and filler for the Grail plot. Yeah, that's the unfortunate weakness of the episode is this stuff is really good, but it's not in service of any of these characters in a plot. It is just there to be kind of an ambiance of the episode to remind you that you're watching a B5 episode. It fills out the picture a little bit. Yeah, it's not like this is a Sinclair episode or this is a Delenn episode. This is a Jinxo episode. You know, Jinxo, this new character that we've never heard of before. And so all of this cool stuff with our main crew of characters also kind of pisses me off because I just kind of wish that this episode was about all of these characters. Okay, but Ryan... Serious question. How much better would this episode have been if Deuce was replaced by Negrath? Him with the knuckling feeder, and they're both talking to each other in their stupid alien voices. Yeah. It's like, feed me. And then Negrath is like, price is too high. I would have loved Garibaldi to start shooting his gun at Nagrath and Nagrath crawls out of a vent. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I would love to see them try that for a start. I'd love to see them make him run. That would be a great <laughs> visual. Okay, I immediately improved this episode. Uh, that's the feeling I'm getting from you. Many complications. Price high. I'll pay for it. The Grail plot. This is the main plot. The episode is an old man comes onto the station looking for the Holy Grail. How do you feel about just that pitch? Is it a good idea or stupid? It's mostly stupid. 
but but you know it's a sci-fi plot and it's somewhat interesting like the idea that this order has existed for a very long time and they've searched everywhere on earth so you know we gotta keep on looking so we gotta go out into space now <sighs> yeah I don't know. It, I, it, it's here. I think it's a bad idea. Uh, honestly, I, I think I, it should have it, it should have stayed in a draft and been forgotten. It could be somewhere. a short story. I, I, I think it just doesn't. It it kind of fits in because it's about spirituality and faith and beliefs in yourself and seeing uh Delenn and the Minbari react to it was was appropriate and true, but I am like Sinclair at the beginning, or Garibaldi, where I can't help but roll my eyes and scoff at the same time at the plot this week is there's a man on the station looking for the grail, the holy grail. Ooh. And he's going to be the main, him and this other guy are going to be the main focus of the episode. Because when you do an episode of an ensemble show like this and you decide for this week we're going to have a new character that has not existed in the show before be the point of view you need that to i don't know serve as a way of commenting upon the usual status quo of the series here it is they have this idea for a plot and realistically none of our crew of characters would engage with it as their plot. While in the TKO episode, I discussed with you how Garibaldi was really the only one that could have been lumped into the boxing plot. Here, they had no one that they could lump in realistically as this. So they had to get these two new existing characters and force them to be the main ones. And yet- Yeah, but I do wonder if they thought that like the character that, is paired with him is going to like you know take on the torch and leave Mm. and they can't do that with any of the main characters so it's like well both of those things lead to the same conclusion how does this how do you improve it though like you can't just have them find the holy grail at the end because that would be silly but no no like the the idea and the path that these characters go on make sense to me like but it just it doesn't make sense here and in this moment for this show it's just Mm. like like you kind of said if it was a short story or one of the tv movies as a vignette yeah then it would be like okay but as a whole 45-minute episode, I couldn't no. get past the silliness of the pitch of old man thinks that the Holy Grail is in space. I held back laughter when he's dying and he's like, I see it. Well, yeah, because... And I'm like, of course you do. Of course you do. The Holy do. Grail was us all along and us becoming better. Did you get it? What? That was not cool. Leah, Ryan, what are you talking about? He's walking around asking them for the grail and everyone except for Delenn treats it as stupid and I couldn't help but agree with everyone in the episode except for Delenn. I was just like, I'm sorry, Delenn, I know. Oh, Lanier is into it too. Oh, Don't Lanier's, discount Lanier's, Lanier. Lanier's, Lanier's hot for Christ. And so <laughs> I... 
We searched our records very thoroughly, Honored Seeker, and we regret if the news disappoints. A plot line that's introduced here is there's a character of Jingso, everyone's favorite character. We all love Jingso, whose existence is he was someone who built Babylon 5 and he worked on every single Babylon station ever. And since he left them or any other reason, they all got exploded or disappeared and he believes he is a Babylon curse and if he leaves the station, Babylon 5 will explode and die, and he can't leave. What do you think about this aspect of the story? The Babylon curse? It's there. I really don't think about it, because it only is here for this episode, and mm-hmm. it's just like, yeah, Jinxo's delusional... But, you know, it makes sense as well. Does it? No, like... (laughs) (laughs) The idea that this would become a thing of, like, everybody making fun of him and him sort of going a bit crazy and, um, like, projecting this curse onto his whole life. I feel like yeah, people do that. People will make up very strange stories to suit a narrative that they want or that others find amusing or purposeful. It's just like, yeah, a tradie crew being like, Jinxo, and the name stuck, and then becoming more obsessed with the idea. Yeah, I think that that makes sense but I don't think it gets enough or in a way where it's like yeah it fits this world and this moment but how does it work as a narrative because they try to make it a narrative they have dramatic cliffhangers to the outbreak oh it doesn't make sense it it, it doesn't work No, like again with lots of things in this episode it's like I get the idea, but the execution, no, no, I don't like it. It never goes beyond... That's an interesting thing I read on the Wikipedia. (laughs) Yes! There was a guy on every station and he believed he had a curse, but he didn't. Oh, that's interesting. The most you could get out of this is if somehow Jinxo came back in In the Beginning or something. There's no commentary. There's nothing to be said here. And he is stupid. When the episode points out how stupid that is, and it's like, no, you should be called lucky. It's like, well, yeah, duh. Yeah. Fucking duh. Like, somebody should have said this to him. He should have thought of this before. And when he demands that he needs to stay on the station and we're all going to die, it is one of the most hollow and empty dramatic stings i think the show has ever put in an episode like oh, like it's it's almost as useless as the kosh one yeah at the start of the episode yeah, but at least that's effective in in setting a mood and then they fuck it up later yeah as soon as he's like i said useless you can't you can't the station will explode if i leave because i have a babylon curse the other reason this exists in the story is as a recap of why is this called Babylon 5? Well, there were these other stations and 
This, this is what happened. This is what happened to them. And it's to further get you intrigued about Babylon 4. Because now we get a description of what happened to Babylon 4. Somebody just heard who it, saw it disappear. Somebody saw it. All we hear is it had disappeared. Now we get, and it wrinkled, and then it disappeared. And it's getting you further. Ooh, what's this going to be? I'm, I'm more excited about Babylon 4 because we know they have to address it at some point. You just don't put that in there. And here we are getting breadcrumbs. Other than that, the Babylon curse aspect of this story is is Wikipedia level entry stuff. It is someone's fanfic level stuff of like, my story is about a guy who comes into the ship looking for the Holy Grail and there's another guy on the ship who can't leave because he believes it will explode yeah. and then there's a gangster called Deuce. You can't do that! I've got to stay here. Please! I don't care what you do to me. Put me in jail. Make me clean the methane toilets. I don't care! I've got to stay on the station or it's the end of the station and every man and woman and child and alien on the station just like all the others. We are not doing David Warner for the spotlight because it's obvious. But I do want to talk about David Warner. Let's talk about David Warner, respected actor, one of the greatest actors you could argue. What's, he, he, he's trying. What's your, what is your history with David Warner? What have you seen him in? I don't know. Like I, I, I'm just like I just know your face. I can't remember specific things. I, ju- I just know you as a performer. Well, he's a villain in Tron. He is in a lot of Star Trek. He was the Cardassian interrogator of Picard, the yeah. Mister Four Lights incident. He was also the Klingon. Um, what was he? The Emperor or uh, uh, Chancellor in Star Trek Six. He was also in Star Trek Five. As a human guy that was uh, getting mind-controlled by uh, everyone's favorite character of Cybok. And so, David Warner has acted his ass off in a lot of things. He's like a Patrick Stewart type in terms of respectable British actor doing weird projects, but delivering that Shakespearean British acting quality to it all. Yep. And he does that here. Yep. And I was embarrassed... For him in every scene for two reasons. No, three reasons. One, he's acting against one of the worst actors we've had in the show thus mm-hmm. far. And so it's making David Warner look like he's working extra hard to make yep, every scene which work. Which makes the scene itself feel more laboured as well. What's number two? His outfit is really silly. Yeah. I-, I couldn't stop laughing at <laughs> They put respected actor David Warner in this stupid little outfit with his stupid staff walking around like he's this Gandalf motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he is. And number three? I don't know all of David Warner's work. I'm sure he's done worse projects in this. He's got a large catalogue. But I couldn't help You but, always get duds. But I couldn't help but think when he was acting in a certain scene, if he thought to himself... This is the lowest I've ever been. When he sat down, that was what I thought. No, <laughs> when he looked a rubber tentacle in the eye <laughs> and, and had a whole conversation with this tentacle, I thought to myself, I wonder if this is the lowest point in David Warner's acting career in oh, terms of, like, see, I'm acting against a rubber tentacle. I, I would feel that more of, like, when he's doing, like, the cover scenes where he's talking directly to the camera as if he's talking to the tentacle. <laughs> like, this is what my life has come to. I'm about to 
talk to a tentacle. It, like I'm giving this my all. I'm like talking directly to the audience, and then I have to go and like talk to a tentacle. I want to see him doing that tentacle scene, and then it's the Arrested Development gag where they play "Hello Darkness, my old friend," yeah. because he looks embarrassed. He looks genuinely embarrassed throughout that scene. Oh, I think most people with his background would be embarrassed if they were doing that. He must have been thinking a year or two before I was acting against Sir Patrick Stewart. I know he wasn't Sir then, but I was acting against Patrick Stewart in Star Trek. And now here I am talking to a fucking terrible actor and and a tentacle. I, I, I felt bad for him. Another thing that we've actually been mentioning throughout this season uh, is in season one, they get these great actors and they don't utilize them for what you want. And we always kept saying David Warner, David Warner, David Warner. He is doing good work here. And David Warner is a lot more versatile than just being the bad Cardassian. I mean, just in Star Trek, he was really good as the Chancellor. In Star Trek Six, he was a nice character. He was warm. He was compassionate. He was wise. He wasn't a villain in that. You could argue that his performance in that movie is similar to his performance in this episode, where he's this old, wise, sage guy who dies, hoping that things could get better. Uh, But the sad truth of the matter is, you just want David Warner to have a good plot. And so he doesn't get utilized in that manner where it's like when you hear and an episode of Babylon 5 has David Warner. Unfortunately, one of the first things you think of is, oh, is he going to be a psycho agent or is he going to be a bad guy? Or is he going to be a Minbari or is he going to be this? You're not thinking, oh, he's going to be a pathetic old man who's walking around with some Paul Giamatti looking motherfucker asking aliens if they have the Holy Grail or not. And then he gets to monologue against a tentacle and then he gets shot by Deuce. Why do you think season one, and do you think it's more than just season one, fails at grabbing these great actors and actually giving them good work to do? Because more often than not, the show has failed in that regard. Yeah. And I, yeah, guest spots are very hit or miss in general. And I think that that continues throughout the show. But I think that they feel heaviest in season one because they happen more? I think a part of it is... Say I'm JMS. I'm JMS, and I'm getting to create my big science fiction show. So what do I want to do? I want to hire a bunch of old science fiction writers and friends to write episodes, because I love that. And, my God, I would love to have all of these great character actors that I saw on TV while I grew up and have them in my show. I would love that. And that's where it ends. Yeah. It, it never feels like there's that level of what he did for Walter Walter Koenig, where it's like, I really have a specific thing in mind for you that I want you to do. It doesn't feel like that's what he had like for David no. Warner. It was like, my friend wrote a script for this episode, and I would love to have somebody in it. David Warner, sure. Let's get the guy for, uh, for infection. Let's get the... Yeah, uh, yeah. The it, the guest spot. Let's get ducky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, Feel more like like vehicles for like oh we could get this kind of person and it would be really fun to have them in the show and it will like help the show in this way. Yeah, not 
we need this character. We need them to play this character because they're the right person. It feels, yeah, it does feel like nerd. Like we're going to make this space. It does feel like a nerd wanting to gather all of his icons and being able to say that I had them. I had David Warner in my show. And then when you watch it, you're like, I kind of wish that you used him in a different episode for a different role entirely. I don't know who could play this role, though, because David Warner does play with grace and dignity. Yeah. As much as I say he looks embarrassed, he's a professional. He he doesn't feel like he's looking down on the material fully, but, I mean, they throw a tentacle at him. <laughs> he does his best to sell it. There's nothing in the dark. No fear. No pain. Only the light. Show yourself. I'm curious to talk about this, which is, in the first two seasons, we have wildly shifting tones and moods and characterization because we have different writers. After a certain point, we don't have any, and it's just JMS, and the show feels more solidified. Do you think that that is something that could have been fixed? Or if they stayed with all these different, like, with a writing team... Babylon 5 could never coalesce into something solid. Okay, here is what I think on that. And that brings in stuff that I know from, like, the context and the background of, like, when the show was being made. Which is that it was his first time being a showrunner. And I... Of the scale, yeah. Yeah. Because he had She-Ra for a while and then he got kicked off of She-Ra. Yeah, and... live action-wise. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he'd been working on it for a really long time, so he was the one that was the most familiar with it, right? Mm. I don't think he had the skills as a showrunner to share his vision mm. and to get other writers to write in the world of Babylon 5 like he did. It feels like it's like, okay, this is a a JMS Babylon 5 episode Mm. and that's the one that we get the most of. So that's the one that we like best because we're most familiar with it, but it has the most depth out of what we get. And most natural qualities. Yeah, what we get with the various other writers. I don't think he knew how to make it cohesive because we do know that other showrunners are very capable of yeah. doing that with the big example that we would go to being Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yeah. They have a large staff of writers and some of them change in and out but they all are very clear on the purpose, intent, and have a very similar approach to, like, how do we tackle these ideas and fleshing the ideas out together and then everybody gets their individual scripts that kind of suit their style. That's the way that I understand that their writing work room, their writer's room works, whereas this feels more like and would be very typical of the time if it was the case that it's just like okay jms is just like oh yeah i'll commission you you and yeah. you um because i know you or i know your work yeah and you'll come up with something 
and I'll I, give I you some trust notes. you. I trust you. Like you got to hit these beats, and then that's why in lots, lots of episodes, you have a moment that sticks out as feeling like, oh yeah, that's really Babylon Fivey, and you're like, oh, it must be a note from JMS to include it in this episode. Yeah, and. It's a double-edged sword because then there are some episodes like Believers where you have a terrible B-plot and that's because JMS said you need this in here because I think it needs to flesh out in this way and that shows a weakness in that regard. But I think that at this stage in his career, he may not have understood that just because you admire the people themselves as individuals or their work doesn't necessarily mean that they're right to work with your show that you're creating. Yeah. Because this the individual idea writer... Of finding the best person and the right fit... Yeah. It doesn't feel like he, he's gotten that idea and I think set in his head yet. Unlike other writers' rooms of this period of time, like in uh, TNG and a lot of others, where they have the, the, a lot of recurring writers... It doesn't feel like there was much of a, a team player atmosphere here because JMS knows exactly what he wants and how he's going to deliver it. And these other people somehow have to manage to crack that barrier. And some do it better than others. But for the most part, they all stick out as sore thumbs because they have wildly different interpretations of the characters. Or they have wildly different ideas of what an episode of B5 could be like with this. Where it's not as if this isn't wrong, but imagine if JMS wrote this episode, how different it would be. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I was thinking about that when I was watching this. I was like, this is really an interesting time in the TV show of Babylon 5 because we'll eventually step away from episodes like this where they have wildly different voices. And I wonder if that could have been a strength the show could have had at some point, which is, could Babylon 5 have actually sustained as a show like its contemporaries of the time or, or stuff later where you do have a writer's room of people and sometimes they come in and out and still have a consistent voice behind it because in this era of the show it doesn't have a consistent voice in the way that we know it to be later yeah there's definitely a vision and an identity here but with episodes like grail you go well okay we've gone really really far off of where midnight on the firing line and death walker and others have been pushing us to yeah it's far from seamless. Yeah, and there are some writers who get it more, right? Yeah. Because they know JMS more. And maybe like they had more time to write their scripts or they got to see like the show Bible a bit more or they were given more direction on where to start and where to go and how it fits in the biggest scheme of things. Or they're similar like, writers There's so to, many factors that go into it. Or they're just similar in writing styles to JMS himself. Well, oh, yeah. the person who wrote this one, I really do feel like they were just asked to come on and they kind of did what they could and it wasn't really in line. It's a writer for hire. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that, that happens. And then it will usually make something like, this episode happened. It's crazy though, right? Say you're a writer for hire. 
and you're my friend, like this person I imagine is for JMS, or we know each other, and say, write an episode for me. Isn't it kind of bizarre that they, they as a writer went, I'll write an episode in which I don't try to write any of the main characters as the protagonist? That, like, that has to be a choice. Yeah. So how did they not know what they had? I'm trying to think how they dropped the ball in this. And again, we don't know all the full details. Maybe JMS was like, you need to put more of these in and more of these. We don't know. Yeah, we do not know how it got to this balance. Or like this quota of like this percentage of this time. Yeah. Cutting back. Because we've never seen a writer do this. Every other writer, like Larry Dottilio, is like, I'm taking care of Ivanova, or I'm taking care of Garibaldi, or I'm taking care of Londo, or I'm taking care of Jakar. This is the only person thus far that says, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to write about Jinxo. I also wonder, like, we're doing a lot of speculating and a lot of speculating about behind-the-scenes stuff, but I do kind of wonder if this was an episode that was built to be able to be kind of plonked in at At uh, any point at any point and like that's why it's so detached in a lot of ways is because it was just like well it it can go here and it can go here because like i was thinking like at the last couple of times that we've been to delenn's quarters we've seen the chrysalisk device getting built we didn't see it here we didn't see it here so like is that a, a sign that it was designed to be kind of a floating episode. Yeah, well, it has to be after Lanier is introduced and before the Babylon 4, and that's it. Yeah. So you have, like, gives 18 a- episodes worth yeah, of places like you it, can put it, it. It's a big break. Well, why we're also skating around the actual contents of the episode is there's not much to talk about, but when you watch it, it does feel like something went wrong behind the scenes here in terms of like the writer's intentions and then the execution of said intentions and And this isn't necessarily it's not as if the direction is bad or the acting is bad none of i mean jinx is bad but the problem started before the episode was filmed long before it yeah it's the commitment to perspective did they actually intend this to be an episode in which it's committed to telling a story from new characters' perspectives, or was that just a byproduct? Again, I have to imagine that was the intention because who, as a writer, would walk in saying, I'm guest writing this and I'm not even going to try writing any of the main characters as the protagonist. If you're going to do that, there has to be an intention there. You have to say, I want to tell a story from some other angle, but it doesn't feel like they actually did do that. And another piece of specula- speculation that might have played into this as well is this is after the point where they were like, okay, we need to back off and reduce the amount of time that Michael O'Hare is having on screen because it's having a negative effect on his mental health. And I do wonder if like that was going to be a B plot and they were like, no. We, we can't do that now because there's that moment at the end with him and Dylan that we mentioned earlier where that could have been like a, a bigger thing, like a, 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 cap- a climax or a cap off to his plot. But he didn't have a plot. But he didn't have a plot. And it's yeah, just like it, it works because we 
of the way that we know those characters, but you do kind of wonder what could have been. Because he is discussing about feeling like he's searching for meaning, but in this episode, that's nothing about his character. No. You could argue that's for the grander context, but even in a singular episode, you need to thread that through for a moment like that to feel coherent within an episode's narrative rather than as a bigger picture, because let's never forget these individual episodes still have to be coherent from beginning, middle to end. It doesn't just mean, oh, it's just tying into the bigger thing. You still need it to feed into itself as an episode. It's a hard thing to live your life searching for something and never find it. Are you speaking of Aldous? Or someone else? We talk about it, but there's this kosh plot here, which feels like it's... Oh, I don't think I would go so far as to say plot. Well, no, it's set up. That's what I mean. It's set up like it could be, but it isn't. And it's dropped. So you get the beginning in which we are to believe that Ambassador Kosh is this evil monster that's drinking people's brains like slushies. And you go, oh, okay, because we don't know much about Kosh. Kosh is mysterious. He's in this encounter suit. He's ominous. We know he's kind of duplicitous. Oh, okay, what an interesting opening. And then throughout the whole entire episode, it's very obvious it's not Kosh. And you go, then why did you set that up and then immediately undercut it? Why did you do that? And again, it feels like someone was given the world of Babylon 5 and was like, oh, this seems like an interesting idea. Yeah. Oh, but I don't want to set it in concrete because Kosh isn't that. Yeah, but I, I, I do enjoy the moment when... Yeah, it's Sinclair talking to Kosh. That's a great scene where he's describing why someone would do that and why... And Kosh is like, good. Yeah, because <laughs> you, you make us afraid because nobody knows what you look like under there. And it, yeah, it's scary. And, and Kosh, yeah, good. That's a really good scene. And imagine how much more powerful that scene would be if this was far more uh, a, a Kosh-centric story in which... People are paranoid and distrustful openly in the episode about Kosh himself because Kosh is a mystery character and everyone in the show treats Kosh with this reverence and fear because he's this ancient alien god and nobody knows what his deal is. So people are... Wouldn't that breed paranoia? Yes, and it's very natural and we kind of see blips of that throughout yeah the whole series but it just it never becomes a proper th- thing in yeah. this episode in particular and imagine this story you could write about the station growing paranoid and there's questions about whether we should let the him have an encounter suit or not because obviously it's for hiding like if someone can replicate the suit how much damage could they do because everyone just assumes it's kosh right and and you could have like a whole political fiasco and kosh could react to the whole thing by being dismissive like i don't want to engage with this i don't care because that's what kosh is like instead they also immediately undercut it in the opening too because one of the things i've always wondered as a kid and this is a, a direction thing this is this is a prop thing the outfit that they have for the fake Kosh looks real enough, but it's not on. Like, mm. its head is just this, and its eye is uh, v- uh, empty. Yeah. And I've always wondered why they did that. 
because it immediately it, lets the audience yeah. know that it's not kosh. It tips the hand. It tips the hand. Why do you think they did that? Like, I guess the in-universe... Playing it safe. Yeah. Because in the in-universe reason is they've built this themselves and they wouldn't have it like that, I guess. But, like, from a narrative perspective, it's not very thrilling, is it? No. Like, I can't believe how much this episode shoots itself in the foot in that regard. Like, it just keeps constantly doing that. Like, every time you think it's going to lead to something minorly interesting... Then it just kind of whimpers out and just yeah. goes, eh, I'm not, I'm not interested. Eh, oh, eh, fuck it. Whimpers out the tagline for this episode. There's a gangster in this episode. We keep saying it. Deuce. Deuce. We've never heard of him. He's clearly the new Negrath, and he's played by a really good actor, but he's got nothing to do. We don't understand anything he's about other than his mustache twirling evil. And then he gets away and there's really no consequence. And it again furthers this vacuous feeling that this episode bestows upon the audience. Yeah. Boy, this is really shaping out to be one of the weakest episodes that we've watched thus far. Yeah, huh? definitely one of one of the weakest, but it does not feel as bad bad as other episodes it's not good but it is not as bad is it time to discuss chinkso in more detail we're doing the actor's spotlight our section of the show in which we spotlight an actor that was in the episode we discuss their performance if we've seen them in anything else give some interesting facts about them talk about a history with them, and of course we have to talk about Jinxo, everyone's favourite character, Jinxo, who is played by which actor, Rachel? Tom Booker. Thomas? Thomas Booker? His name is actually... Wow, they didn't even have to give him a different name, huh? Just Jinxo. Oh, man. So, is he the worst performance we've seen in the show thus far? I don't like the single people out yeah. like this, but is he the worst that we've seen in our rewatch currently? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I feel comfortable saying that. You know, I'm going to be a killjoy. I think he's not as bad as Takashima in The Gathering. I still think that she has been the standout to me in terms of, like, I don't know what they were trying to go for. With yeah. this with this performance. I know you liked her more than I did. Uh, yeah. He reminded me of Takashima. I've forgotten about Takashima. Oh, good. The show has. <laughs> uh, he's terrible. Uh, it's really bad to say that because obviously he's trying. This is his first TV mm-hmm. role, as, you, as you've stated. He's obviously going for something, but he's unnatural. You don't understand what his emotions are supposed to be because... He's overacting, yet he's supremely flat. Like, like his, yeah. his delivery is very, very lifeless, but he's yelling a lot, so it makes yeah. it feel like there's energy but, there. like, the pitch of his voice doesn't really change throughout the sentences, so, no. like, he, he... He's raising the level of his voice, but not tonally changing it. Yeah, so, like, it all feels flat, even though he's doing all of these physicality thing. Oh, his face is going all over the place. He has this very predictable rhythm of speaking too. And I don't know if it's an accent thing because he has a very specific accent. I don't know where in America this accent lives in, but he has this way of speaking in which 
he comes across like he's a little bit dopey and that he's kind of speaking like a child does in which it's really hard to get everything across. Like, it feels like he has to keep saying, and then... And then I did this thing, and then the Babylon 4 station exploded. No, I can't go, I can't leave. He reminded me of a child. I didn't know how old he was supposed to be, because he says he was too young for the Minbari War, yet he's been old enough to build five stations. But his performance made me feel like he was supposed to be 17. Yeah, well, the Earth Minbari War was 10 years ago, as we know. But he's not 17. You can't but, be 17 building space stations. No, but like that means that like he was under 18 10 years ago, which may be like he's pushing 30, which the actor he, he, was when he you, played this I was going to say, he has to be older than us. <laughs> like, we yeah. are 28. He has to be older than that. He yeah. looks older, but he's performing it like a child. Like He would have been about that... 29 when they were filming because he was born in, oh, what was it, 64. Do you think that was an intentional thing on his part to play it with this kind of young energy? Or do you think that is just a failing of him as an actor? Because you pick that up too. Yeah, I I think he was misdirecting the naivety of the character. That's a great way to describe it. Like, he's supposed to be kind of clueless, innocent victim. Oh, no, I'm scared. But he really does play it like he's supposed to be a young teenager. Like, I've just, golly gee, golly gee, you didn't like him in this episode. But I am excited to do like the info dump about the actor and like him as a person. Do you I think this role stuff. could have worked if another actor played it? Like if an actor who, like how David, like Warner, if an actor just dropped into this role, one who and it was is, the same elsewhere. I don't think so. I don't think Jinxo in its current form is a salvageable character. So do you think that this guy is a bad actor because of the script or just because of his own talents as a performer? Because we've not seen him in anything else. We've only seen him in this. I think it's a lot of things. I think it's a lot of things that are working against it. It's his first role... Like yeah, and he he doesn't have a particular like actor actor background, and the like the character is just not fully there, and he doesn't have the skills to bring in any depth. No, wait, wait! You gotta help me. They got all this. They took him, and Deuce is gonna feed him to the Vorlon. Vorlon. Like the woman, and he ate her mind, and he's gonna eat all this. You gotta help me. I'll get a security team now. Garibaldi, track my signal. Jinxo's taking me to Deuce and the feeder. They've got all this too. Get a security team. They're on the double. Let's go. Okay, are you ready for the info dump? Yeah, I didn't do any research into this other than I looked at his IMDb and saw he did a voice in Evangelion. Yes. So that's that was like an interesting his, fact. His best known is those two. Oh, John um, Snyder must he, have been so pissed off that he didn't get that role. <laughs> He's like, that, that fucking Jinxo stole okay. it from me. I'm just so, trying to be a guy. This Tom Booker is not to be confused with the Tom Booker, who is a character played by Robert Redford yeah. in the 1998 film The Horse Whisperer. Classic film. <laughs> you know, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me that Jinxo wasn't played by Robert Redford? <laughs> Yeah. 
I, I saw that I saw that greasy hand sweating man and I thought that's Robert Redford isn't it no, it would it's be a... Robert Redford playing Tom Becker, who, Tom, Tom Booker. Booker, who's playing Tom. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's playing yeah, Tom. Yeah, I thought that was Robert Redford. I, I butchered that bit. Chinkso isn't played by Great Gatsby himself, Robert Redford? <laughs> wow. No, no. Uh, so his last credit was, I think it was a TV movie mm. in, uh, in 2018. He has a total of 27 credits. <sighs> Um, he also directed a film. Oh, is it called Where... Jinxo Two Electric Boogaloo? In no. which it's about in which it's about all of our favorite B five characters that suck that leave the station and they all hang out at Jinxo's mansion in um, which he's drinking from a chalice. No, um, so I'll I'll leave the title, but this is basically the synopsis. Uh, dude wins a basketball trick shot, like you know mm-hmm. when they do the half court shot, and he uses uh, yeah. uses that money to set up a photocopying business. Okay, which then Sounds starts rolling, failing oh. because like the corporate competition moves in, and basically pranks come from that. So is he in it? Yeah, yeah, he has a part in it. I don't think he's one of the main dudes. Oh, fuck. I would have loved it if he was the main guy who's like, I'm going to use this trick shot money to make a photocopying business of my fun movie. What do you think that the film about a struggling photocopying business is called? I don't know. What? Kill the man. Should we do that as a Patreon exclusive (laughs) or what? If we can uh, find Kill the Man, should we? Oh, would people be interested one. in listening to us talk about Kill the Man? I, I would love to find it. Um, Thin Pink Line, which stars Jennifer Aniston, and he directed this. No, no, no. This he's is just he's in the, it. This is he's just in it. Um, so, what do you think his character name in this movie might be? Thomas. No, <laughs> Tom. no. So, so this Jigsaw. is this is a movie about um. A flamboyant serial killer, from what I understand, and it's like a mockumentary. Is he the killer? No. <sighs> he is credited as wet underwear contestant. Oh, man. You know what? I take it all back. Grail would have been a salvageable episode if we could see him <laughs> in some wet underwear. I'm just saying, could you imagine the scene in this episode where he's in the courtroom screaming... And he's just in some wet underwear. I would have. Oh, getting. You know what? I'm getting a little uh, hot under the collar thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, do you know? We found. When I say we, you mean you? Ah, uh, yeah. Because I I enjoy doing a little bit of internet snorking, and often we like try and find their Twitter or their Instagram to yeah, see what they? they're up to. Where are they now? But what I found for Tom was his Facebook, where he has lots of public posts, like daily posts. Oh, no. Is he some kind of creep? That is, like, the same joke. Oh. Um, So each day he posts, or, like, pretty much each day he posts a picture of when he's giving his three dogs their nightly treat. Which is like, you know, just nice and wholesome. Yeah. Um, And various kind of 
boomer level memes. I would expect nothing less from Jigsaw. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the main thing that he does with his time and with his life yeah, on is media. improv. Oh, He's fuck an me. improv guy. Are you kidding? So... You're kidding. He, he, he screams <laughs> improv. Was he on his line? Is it anyway? Oh, no, man. So, so he's, Im- he's improv trained oh. and that's what brought him to LA in the first place. Um, for a little while, he worked at Second City, like one of their places. Um, but currently, currently, um, he runs the Institution Theatre in Austin, Texas. Oh, my God. Which is a comedy club um, slash improv You're- place. So now, like, they're doing mostly online classes. Oh, we could get some classes from Jinx. <laughs> yes. So yes. I have... Two reviews. Have you booked us in for Jinxo lessons? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't go that far. Should we get Jinxo lessons and put it on our Patreon? Our experience of how Jinxo taught us improv. Let us know. Um. So these are our two reviews. I'm gonna go with the shorter one first, and this is just for the like the place in general. This place is a home, and Tom and Asif will treat you like family. Oh, I hope they do. <laughs> I hope when I look him in the eyes in our online improv lesson and say, Hi, I'm Jigso. <laughs> and then this I can't is a, leave. <laughs> this is a longer one. This one was from Yelp. <laughs> Tom's a great guy. He's a guy. Who is easy to talk to. More importantly, though, he really knows his stuff. Oh, I bet he does. His background in the field is extensive, and he demonstrates it often. Should we interview Tom (laughs) Patreon and and get him to talk to us about improv? (laughs) The class itself can often be pretty challenging, as writing often is, but you'll ultimately get as much out of it as he put in. Regardless of your experience level, Tom makes the class easygoing and fun for everyone. If you go into this course with a willingness to work, you will improve your skills. No, no you will improve your skills. <laughs> oh my god, wait, wait, Austin, Texas. Oh boy. We gotta book Julio, one of our previous guests, some tickets if when they're all opened up and free again, because Julio's in Austin, Texas. Oh my god. This is perfect. Oh, Tom Booker, please teach us your improv ways. Can I just say, it all adds up now. (laughs) I know, right? Because I study drama, and there's a certain breed of people that are improv Improv people. Improv breeds a certain culture, and certain people are attracted to improv. A culture that I don't like very much. (laughs) I really don't like improv people. No, like... I thought about maybe booking a scene and I was like, fuck, I don't want to do, I don't even want to do this as a joke. I'm, unless, no, I'm not spending money on this. People, I'm not spending time on this. people want us to do it and they head over on and support our Patreon and we can get it. Maybe, who knows? Tom Booker, let's talk. Teach me how to improv, Jinxo. I woke up and said to myself, I'm going to die. Grail, it's a yum. <laughs> It's a yum. Yeah. We started out thinking this plot was bad, but not in a way that was like confusing like TKO. 
But now having talked about it, I really do want to understand what the intentions were here from the person who wrote this. And if they got whittled away by circumstances we don't understand. Where did it start? What was the journey? And how did we end up with this? You know, the answer probably is... They were commissioned to do it, and they just farted it out after having to write 15 other scripts for other shows, and this is what we got. Yeah. Sometimes that is the easiest of answers, is and, you yeah. get a work for hire, you, you shit, out, shit out a thing, and here we are. And decades later, here we are trying to understand the master strokes of Grail, and really there isn't any master strokes. It is, we wrote a script, put it out there, we filmed it, we moved on to the next episode, and hopefully people tuned in that week where we saw David Warner act against a tentacle. What are we doing next week on Babylon 5? On the next Babylon 5. We are up to the 16th episode of the first season, Eyes. Eyes! Does Sinclair have something to hide? An Earth Force Colonel Gregory Martin takes command of the station when Sinclair and his frontline officers refuse to submit to Psychops Loyalty's mind scan. But maybe the individual with something to hide is the new commander. They don't even mention Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs is in that episode, but I guess the son of George Martin, the Beatles producer George Martin, I guess that's pretty high cred to put in the description so we will be talking about eyes next episode so Mm -hmm. make sure to watch that in the interim if you need to get up to date with all the juicy details of that Uh, you can follow us on all of those social medias facebook twitter instagram reddit uh tumblr tiktok so on and so forth yum yum pod or yum yum podcast we are posting stuff on there we'll let you know our tom booker progress reports on there if need be we also have as oh he also has a goatee now no yeah Oh my and god! Has, like, that, like, He's been replaced by the mirror speckled. universe version of Tom Booker. No. Speckled with a little bit of grey. <gasps> no, he's aged. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it. So you can follow us on the social media for some f- more fun stuff like that. We have posts on there. We're always interacting. We have an email, which is yumyumpod at gmail.com. In which you can email us with your questions, thoughts, queries, concerns. We can read some out on the podcast if need be. And uh, we have our Patreon in which we talk about numerous things. We have different tiers. We have a Discord that you can be a part of if you join our Patreon. You may, in the future, see some Tom Booker updates on there, whether we find a copy of his movie that he directed about the photocopy salesman or whatever the fuck that was, whether we get an interview with him, whether we find out more about his improv course, whatever it is, we have our Patreon, we talk about the X-Men movies on there, we talk about Star Trek episodes on there, it's a really fun time, come join us on there if you can, it'll be greatly appreciated, we're always needing some more love and support, you can support and love us if you want to by rating and reviewing us on whatever podcatcher you use to do so, but outside of all of those plugs, I'm just going to say 
Thank you all for listening to the show. It's been really great getting all the support and appreciation, getting the hits, getting the clicks, but also getting all the interaction. People are just really keen on hearing us talk about an old 1990s sci-fi show, Mm -hmm. a show that we, of course, deeply love. And it is nice to know that other people love the show and other people are listening to us gush about it but also criticize it it's just a fun time all around so thank you all so much you who are disappointed that i'm not more miserable star trek discovery is coming back star trek discovery will punish rachel for having too much of a fun time talking about babylon 5 but that is it rachel jakar was not in this episode so he did not just get to say good eating to you but I will say it to you. Good eating to you, Rachel. And good eating to you. And good eating to Tom Booker, wherever you are out there teaching improv. Good eating to you, Jinxo. Ah, Mr. Cannibal, this.